0: Daniel chapter 3, verses 19 through 30. Daniel 3, verses 19 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not, were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So if you are with us last week, though, we can, when we concluded our study of the early first part of chapter 3, and we finished in verses 16 through 18, you remember that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego have told the king that they would not bow down to his idol, and even if their God, who's able, doesn't rescue them. What I want to do, though, is take you back to verses 13 through 18. Here's why. There's going to be something in these verses, in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, part we left off with and finished up with last week. There's something here in that that's going to be helping us in our study tonight of the second half of chapter 3 and will help us in the rest of our study of Daniel. So go back to Daniel chapter 3 and start in verse 13. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now notice how... Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 15, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? There's a couple things I want to pull out from this statement. The first thing is this. Nebuchadnezzar is putting himself on the same level with the other gods of Babylon or even higher. If he said, who is the God that can rescue you out of my hand? He sees himself on the same level as these other gods or even greater than these other gods. And as you know, when you start putting yourself there, you're heading for trouble. We'll get to that in chapter four next week in our study of chapter four. But he again says, who is the God that will rescue you out of my hands? Now, as you're going to see, uh, as we touched on last week and we get into some more tonight, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, introduce Nebuchadnezzar once again to the one true God who will deliver them out of his hands either by life Or by death. That's what I want you to see. Look closely. They said in verses 16 through 18, we're not going to read it again. They said, The God whom we serve is able to rescue us, but if he chooses not to, we're not bowing down. But look at how they word it. They said, He will deliver us out of your hands. But they don't know if they're going to live or die. That's because they understood that even if they lived and he delivered them, and because they lived through the fire, or if they died, they would be delivered out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Let me say something to you tonight. We're going to be looking at it all through our study tonight. God wants each of us to get to a point where we so trust the Lord, we're willing to die if we have to. Where we get to a point where we hold on to things of this world so loosely, Satan has nothing to use against us. For example, as you know, the scripture says in the tribulation period, the church won't be here at that time, but during the tribulation period, the tribulation saints are going to have to, after the midpoint of the tribulation, make a decision whether or not they're going to take the mark of the beast. And if they don't take the mark of the beast and they don't worship the image and the beast himself, they will be killed and they won't be able to buy or sell. And they're going to die if they make that decision. But at the same time, we need to have, biblically, the Bible says, an attitude that says We so aren't living for here that we trust God so much that even if we die, we're okay because we get to go be with Christ. Even if the things that we hold on to in this life are taken from us, that's okay. They're not as important as what is in store for us in the life to come. This is why we need to pray and make sure our family members know the Lord because Satan can't even use your family against you if they know the Lord. Because you know from the moment your family members are killed, if they w- are, where do they go? If they know the Lord, instantly into the presence of the Lord. Go with me back to, to uh, Philippians chapter 1. We ended up with this last week, and I just kind of come. I felt like I hit it a little quick, and I want to make sure that we kind of let this truth sink in. Now, by the end of Philippians chapter 1, Paul starts to realize that he's going to stay in the body. But when he begins to write what he's writing, as you see in chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. He's not sure if he's going to live or die, but look at how he words it. It sounds just like the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, and if I go to Philippians, that would help. There we go. Philippians 1, verse 19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm gonna be delivered. If I live, I'll be delivered and released from the prison. If I die here in the prison, I'm gonna be delivered. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, That means fruitful labor. Then he says, what shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. He then goes on and he says, I sense the spirit telling me that I'm supposed to stay in the body and help you in your progress in the faith. But listen to what he said. He said, I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit, I'm going to be delivered, whether by life or by death. Jesus, when he stood before Pilate and Pilate said, don't you realize I have the authority to have you put to death or released? Jesus calmly looked at him and said, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it was given to you by my father. I'm not even looking at you, Pilate. I'm looking at the one who's in control. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego before the king, who's the king of all the earth at that time, has all the power and all the authority. And he's in a rage. He's probably spitting. He's so mad. Who is the God able to rescue out of my hands? They calmly said, we don't even need to answer you. But if you want an answer, let me tell you what we're thinking. The God we serve is able to rescue us, and we're going to be delivered out of your hand, whether we live or whether we die. Go back to chapter 3 of Daniel. Look at verse 28. Look at how Nebuchadnezzar comes to realize that's exactly what they said. Daniel chapter 3, verse 28 Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Go with me real quickly to Psalm 23. What impressed Nebuchadnezzar about these guys and the calmness they had? They were were ready to die if that's what happened. Go to Psalm 23. Look at verse 4. We're going to come back to Psalm 23 later in our study tonight, but look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We're going to deal with this in a lot more detail later on in a little bit of our study, but keep that in mind. Even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll have nothing to fear. Why? It says it right there, because he's with us. He's with us. That's very, very important. i want to come back to this later on. There's something here I want to pull out, but I want to deal one more time with verse 15 of chapter 3. Look again at what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 15 of chapter 3. He says, and who... Is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I have been so excited and ready to show you this because in all my years of studying the scriptures and knowing this story, I've never seen what I'm about to show you. Nebuchadnezzar says what? Who is the God who's able to deliver you out of my hands? Now, he may not have realized it. I know Satan, who's empowering him a little bit right now, definitely knows what he's saying But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know it, I'm pretty sure. But Nebuchadnezzar is saying word for word what God himself had just said through the prophet Isaiah many years before. Prophet Isaiah had already spoken and written his prophecy not quite a hundred years prior to this episode. And go with me to Isaiah 43 and look at how... Nebuchadnezzar says almost word for word what the true God said in Isaiah 43, starting in verse 8. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 8 bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Who was the first God to say, who can deliver out of my hand? Jehovah. God, speaking to the nation of Israel and to the nations, He says, I am God. There have been no other gods. I'm the only one. And who can deliver out of my hand? If I do something, it can't be stopped. So many years later, Nebuchadnezzar says word for word what God had said in Isaiah 43, verses 8 through 13. Again, I'm not sure Nebuchadnezzar knew he was quoting God. I think Satan knew it. But here's where it gets really cool. We're in chapter 43, right? Go back with me to the beginning of chapter 43. We jumped in at verse 8. Look at verses 1 and 2. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through, what? "'The fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you.'" Folks, this is all being orchestrated. It's no accident that this is an episode where God's people are going to go through a fire and God's going to be with them because it's tied to God had already said, "'I'm the only God, there are no other gods, and no one can deliver out of my hand whatever I do, no one can stop.'" So many years later, Nebuchadnezzar, thinking he's one of the gods, if not greater than the other gods, says, who can deliver out of my hands? God says, you know what? I already wrote about this whole story back in Isaiah chapter 43. Isn't that cool? It gets even better. I can't wait. But let's go talk about these furnaces real quick. The furnaces were most likely kilns that were shaped like vertical tubes. We don't know specifically what they look like. It's kind of tricky as you read the story. It's obvious they're thrown into the fire and they fall into the fire, yet there's a door on the, on the furnace somehow that they can come out of. But archaeologists have found over in that area of the world, they found some kilns that are actually like vertical tubes, And some of them had a dome structure with columns over them and they would make huge fires in there and they would be used to use charcoal and and they would burn things and and, and use the heat for for lots of different purposes. But the fire was heated so much hotter that the men who threw them in were killed in the process to let this sink in. How many of you have ever been to a bonfire? I'm not talking a campfire. I'm talking a bonfire. When we talk a bonfire, we're talking a huge, huge fire where they're throwing, I've actually seen, I've been to a bonfire where they threw a car on the bonfire. It was pretty amazing, by the way. And it was amazing to see that thing melt in front of us. It was crazy. We, it was so hot. We took Coke cans, and we would throw the Coke can into the bonfire, and you could count to 10, and it was gone. It just melted. Has any of you, those, show of hands, how many of you have been to a bonfire? You've seen a bonfire. Okay. For those of you that have been to a bonfire, can you roast a marshmallow at a bonfire? You can't even get anywhere near close enough to it, can you? You'll kill yourself trying. This fire was so hot that the men who were throwing them in were killed instantly in the process. That's a serious fire. But the Bible says, in verse, go back to Daniel 3, verses 21 through 23, they're fully clothed and they fall into this fire. Look at verses 21 through 23. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. So are they in control of their descent? No. If, we've ever, if you've ever fallen, I mean fallen, fallen off a ladder, off a roof. I've done both, by the way. You have no control over your descent and how you land. You wish you could, but you really don't. In the same way, these guys are thrown into the fire. They're falling and they're bound. They have no ability to even use their arms or anything to, to right themselves. So they're obviously falling into the fire. Yet. When Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire, the three men are not bound, and they're walking around in the fire. Yet they're not alone. I love meditating on passages. If you and I had been thrown into a fire like this, and miraculously, we weren't burned, what would you and I have done? Try to get out. Like, okay, it's not hurting, but let's get out of here, right? They're not in a hurry because what's happening in the fire is so supernatural and so amazing. And because I'm going to show you who it is in just a second, this individual is there. They're not in a hurry to get out of it. They're at rest rest in the midst of this episode. Again, I don't need to show of hands for this one. I want you to think to yourself, how many of you have been through a trial a hard time that was so severe, yet in that trial, Jesus showed up in ways that you can't describe to other people. Probably most of you. I know of people that have shared stories and they'll say, Jim, I never want to ever go through what I went through in the past. But let me tell you, I came to know Jesus in a way that I never knew him before. And in the episode, even though it was a trial, I had a peace that overwhelmed me, and at the time, I wasn't in a hurry to get out while he finished what he was doing. The fourth person, Nebuchadnezzar said, had the appearance of like a son of the gods. Now, it could have just been an angel. I mean, look at chapter 3, verse 28 again. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And set aside the king's command and all. So Nebuchadnezzar used the word angel. It could have just been an angel. I don't want to take you there because of time. But in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, the Bible talks about angels. and talks about how they're ministering servants sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. The Bible clearly shows us that God uses angels many times to come to the earth and, and to help and to minister. And Nebuchadnezzar does use the word angel. But I believe without question from a bunch of the scriptures we're going to look at tonight... That this wasn't just an angel, that this was Jesus. Do you remember this whole episode is being orchestrated? God already kind of prophesied about it in, in Isaiah 43. Who said he would be there? God did. God said, I'll be there. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Go ahead. What Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2. I want you to see that the word angel can be used to refer to Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So here it says that Jesus came and gave this message to John on the Isle of Patmos, but he's also described as an angel. We do know that it was Jesus that showed up on the island of Patmos. If you don't go read Revelation a little more, and you'll see that when John turns around to hear who's speaking to him, he falls on his feet and begins—I mean, falls on his face and begins to worship him. And Jesus says, "It's me." Go to Judges chapter six. I hope all of you know that Jesus has always existed. He didn't become jesus when he was born of mary now you say jim of course everybody knows that actually you'd be surprised i was a pastor in chicago years and years ago when one of the members of the church an 80 something year old man had been a member the, of the church for 12 years i showed up as a new pastor and i was preaching regularly and he came to me one day and he said I got a problem with you, and I said, "What's that?" He goes, "You keep talking about Jesus like he's always existed. Jesus didn't even show up till he was born by to, by Mary." I said, you need to come to my office with me real quick. And we went and sat down, and I took the time to walk him through and show him the scriptures, how Jesus has always existed. Colossians 1, nothing was made that hasn't been made by Jesus. John chapter 1 says the same thing. How Exodus says you're to bow to no one but God Himself. Yet over here in Philippians chapter 2, every knee's gonna bow to Jesus. Jesus has always existed. Jesus is God. And what was such a cool thing is to watch this man who's in his 80s who just thought Jesus was a really, really good man, and he was a church member. He gave his life to Jesus Christ there in my office at 80-something years old because he came to believe that Jesus is God. Go to Judges chapter 6. Look at verses 11 through 16. It says, Now an angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out weed in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if it, the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all these, his, his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of the Midian. By the way, you can see in the conversation, Gideon thinks it's just an angel. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Because my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But, there it is again. You can see it again. I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Jump down to verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizorites. The whole time he's talking with his angel, he knows it's a visitor from heaven, but he doesn't know it's God himself. All of a sudden he realizes this is God. And he's afraid because they've been told whoever sees God will die. And God says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Jesus appeared many times before he took on flesh on the earth. And this is one of those times, I believe without question, that Jesus himself showed up in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Go back to Psalm 23. About a month or two ago, maybe more, I've lost track of time. I'm getting to that age where time's going faster and faster and faster. I want to look at Psalm 23 with you. About two two or so months ago, God had me spend a long time meditating on Psalm 23, just staying there. And he began to show me so many cool things. I'm only going to pull a couple of things out tonight, but they tie with where we're going here. Look at, at Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. he 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 format if you will and it changes to you folks i I, that's what i want i'm praying for us tonight those of us that are here those that are listening right now that our relationship with god would move from a theology to a personal experience it's one thing to study about god It's one thing to study about God and to be able to get the right answer if you're given a test about God. It's another thing to know it personally. David says, the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He does these things. But then it turns to, I'm going to be okay because you are with me. It moves from theology to personal experience. But look closely at what he says here. He says, he leads me, well, let me get back up. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Have any of you ever had a really good nap on a lawn one day on a summer day? Have you ever done that? Probably some of the best nap you could ever have. It's just go get in a green grass somewhere and lay down and have a great nap. Then it says he leads us by still waters. That's wonderful. Then he leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Man, that sounds so cool. And look at the very next verse. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Hang on for a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. How'd we end up in the valley of the shadow of death? I thought he was leading me by green pastures and and still waters. I thought he was restoring my soul. How'd we end up in in the valley of the shadow of death? The answer is in the verse. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Listen to me very carefully, and this is we're going to go tonight in the time we have left. The paths of righteousness, for, the name, for his name's sake, are the trials and the tests that we're going to go through. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verses 5 through 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. The Hebrew writer says, you've forgotten the exhortation, some translations say encouragement, that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes from Proverbs 3.11, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline. Remember, discipline is not punishment. We've already been spared the punishment. Jesus took our full punishment. A discipline is a, is a shaping, a molding. And as you're going to see, it's not always fun. But don't regard lightly the discipline or the training or the teaching of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Now, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Yes, there's going to be times that God takes you to the green pastures and lets you take a nap. Yeah, there's going to be times where he takes you by the still water and he says, take a drink and just rest. But a lot of times, if you want to be led in the paths of righteousness, you have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. That is who God is and what he does. It's a, yeah, there's plenty of preachers, preachers out there, and they're on TV, and they've got big buildings, and there's lots of churches out there that will be full of people loving hearing the preaching, how you're not ever going to be sick, and you're supposed to be a millionaire, and God wants it to be all wonderful. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus himself said in John chapter 16, verse 33, In this world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble. But listen, but in me you'll have peace. Take heart, I've overcome the world in John chapter 14, you don't have to turn there. In John chapter 14, verses uh, 18 through 20, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And in that day, you're going to realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. You won't be left alone. Even though you go through the waters, it won't overwhelm you. If you go through the fire, I will be with you. Too many of us, unfortunately, when we go through trials, try to hang on as best we can, or we try to get out of it. Recently, God's been having me say to some people that I'm working with and, and walking them through some things, I say to them, I say, don't get off the operating table until he's done. By the way, as a pastor, I used to always say that whenever I'd go visit someone that was having surgery, I'd always say two things. The first thing I always told them was, whenever you put that hospital gown on, the end is in sight. <laughs> Let it sink in, all right? Especially for those people that are bigger. All right, so you skinny girls can wrap it around and it's not so visible. But here's the other thing I would always say is they're heading and being wheeled off. We would pray with them, and then as they're being wheeled off to surgery, I would always say the same thing. Lay still while they're doing the surgery and don't get off the operating table until he's done. We need to remember that same thing. When we're going through the test, when we're going through the trial, when we understand that everything that comes to us now that we're children of God is from his hand of love, we won't be in a hurry to and be done with this. Have you ever noticed when the jail doors flew open and the chains fell off, Paul and Silas, nobody moved? They weren't praying, God, get us out of here. They were praising him and worshiping him because they knew this was being done by God. These are paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he has a purpose. And I want his purpose to be accomplished. We've turned our, especially American Christians, our prayers into, okay, God, let's get this over with. God says, you still don't get it. I want you to go through this. It's because I love you. It's because you're my child. This is actually going to be for your good, even if you die. By the way, are you there to that point yet, that if someone were to come right now and say, renounce Jesus or we'll kill you? I'd look at him and say, do me a favor. Do me a favor. They... The world has nothing on you when you get to that point where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they were, saying, we don't know how this is going to play out, but we're going to be delivered either way. If, if, he, if he delivers us and does a miracle, that we get out of this. like Praise the Lord. I'm, I, I, for those of you who didn't get the announcement already on the internet out there, I had my cancer doctor appointment yesterday, and I'm now three and a half years officially in remission of my non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and we thank the Lord for it. But if I died from that... I'm a winner either way and so are you if you're in Christ if you get to stay in the body more fruitful labor if you go be with Jesus I think Paul said that's better yet as I travel around the country and I talk to Christians in churches I say how you're doing you'd be surprised how many people have said to me well at least I'm on this side of the dirt and I always say the same thing the other side of the dirt's better (laughs) the other side of the dirt is better if you know Jesus, but we need to get to that point where we really, it's not just theology. He'll be with me. You're with me. Now, I want to take this episode to talk to you about the trials by fire that we'll, we, we've touched on a little bit, but I want, to, I want you to see even some more from scripture. God is a God who refines by fire. Now, you hopefully know that he uses fire also for judgment. We'll close with that tonight. Fire is used for judgment. There's a lake of fire, and Hades is a place of fiery torment. Fire is for judgment as well. But those of us who are in Christ, do we need to fear the judgment? No. But that doesn't mean that you still won't experience fire coming from God. The Bible shows that God uses fire trials as a refining process. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Look at verse 11. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? So if I'm interpreting this correctly, John the Baptist says the Holy Spirit will not only be given to you from God when you get saved, you're also going to get fire. Go with me to Malachi. You're in Matthew. Back up one book. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 4. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is speaking to John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. I hope you do know this. If you don't, let me just say this to you. In order to purify gold, you need to have a hotter fire than you do for purifying silver. I'm, walking a pastor and his wife through a fiery trial right now. I'm actually going to be heading up to the church where they are, and they're actually on a sabbatical. They aren't going to be there, but there's an episode that's going on, and I'm heading up there this weekend to go try to be used of God to help bring healing in the church, and talking with the pastor and his wife, and and speaking of him and his wife, and as he was sharing the struggles and what's happening and what all's going on, after listening to him for almost an hour, I said, I'm kind of excited for you. He goes, what? He goes, you're the first person that feels that way. I said, listen to me very carefully. I said, I've come to realize over the years in the scriptures and from experience that God, those that God wants to use mightily are the ones who go through the tougher trials. Paul was sorry. Ananias was told in Acts chapter nine about Paul. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Did God use Paul mightily? But he went through a lot of trials and a lot of suffering. It was a major part of his whole life. All these disciples of Jesus, as far as we can tell from history, they were martyred for their faith. And I just told him, I said, unless you get off the operating table before the surgery's done, he's doing something in you, and you've got to let this happen, you and your wife, so that what he wants to accomplish in you and through you down the road will be accomplished. But it, he wouldn't put you through what you're going through unless he had something big in mind. But you got to stay on the operating table. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see from the Scriptures that this has been there all along. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, before I go to the next verse, look closely at what he just said, He said, praise God because of Jesus and his mercy and God's mercy, we've been given a living hope, an inheritance And living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this inheritance is undefiled, unfading. Who's holding on to it? He is. Kept in heaven for you who are shielded by God's power through faith. Look at what he says next, though, in verse 6. In this we rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith... More precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? We all have no problem saying, praise God, I'm saved. Praise God, I'm going to heaven when I die. Can you say, praise God, I'm going through a trial? Because the Bible says that should be our attitude as well. That's why the Bible says, consider it all joy, 1 James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of different kind. Why? Because they're going to produce what God wants to produce. It is the valley of the shadow of death. That is the path of righteousness. You want to grow in your walk with the Lord? You have to go through these things. Jesus said in John chapter 15, every branch in me that's producing fruit, he what? Prunes so that it produces more fruit. And those of you that know anything about pruning, you cut it. I love how the Bible showed us in Daniel 3 that after this trial and God being there in the fire with them and walking them through it and doing something that was so amazing that people couldn't even explain, you don't even smell like smoke. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Babylon. Do you know who else promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? God did. Folks, when you go through the trial, don't get off the operating table until he's done. Let the work be finished. Don't be in a hurry to get out of it. Don't spend all your time saying, Lord, take this away, take this away, take this away. Be willing to say, Lord, if you want to take it away, that's okay with me. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. Jesus prayed it. Nevertheless, if you desire for me to go through this, show up. I believe you will. Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also rejoice in our what? I'm going to stop you real quick. Do you? We're supposed to. If you really understand the truth of the word of God, you will. You're supposed to. Listen to what he says. We not only rejoice in the fact we're going to go to heaven, we also rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts, through the Holy Spirit, whom has been given to us. By the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have never experienced that visit from Jesus if they had said, we'll bow down. Yes, Yes, rejoice in sufferings doesn't mean that you like the suffering. No. It means that you put your eyes on God instead of the suffering. Great point, Glenn. The rejoicing in suffering is not that you say, I love this. No, you don't enjoy the suffering, but you put your eyes on God and you celebrate the fact that God's going to do something through this that's going to make me grow. It's going to produce glory for himself however he wants to. And we don't have to worry about figuring that all out. I've heard for too many years people say, and they, they love to quote Romans eight twenty-eight, which is great. How God will cause all things to work for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And I've seen too many people saying, "Hey, you know, I lost my child, and so and so got saved at the funeral, so God made something good come out of it." You look at the context, by the way, of Romans eight. The context is heaven. Starting in verse eighteen, Paul says, "I consider that our present suffering is not worth being compared with the glory to be revealed." Creation is waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed because creation has been put under a curse until the one who cursed it, which is God, is going to set it free. And then not only that, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly waiting for that day that we get our new bodies and the adoption as sons. And in the midst of all this, that same Holy Spirit, though, that has been given to us as a deposit guarantee, as a guarantee, he prays for us and we don't even know how to pray but he prays in accordance with the will of God. When you're going through something, you don't even know how to pray about it. God's already praying for you and, his reason, and what his purposes are, are already being prayed for by the Holy Spirit. Give me a couple, of, give you a couple of examples. When Jesus was on the cross, what was his prayer that he prayed out loud in front of everybody over and over? Father, forgive me. They don't know what they're doing. By the way, did the people ask for forgiveness? Did they know they needed forgiveness? Did they even know that's why Jesus was on the cross? Listen, Jesus was praying for all of those people in accordance with the will of the Father, even though the people didn't even know what God was doing. In the same way, when you're going through a trial and you don't know why you're going through that trial, God already knows what he wants to accomplish and the Holy Spirit's already praying. We've been taught, that Romans 8, Well, we've asked the Holy Spirit to help us pray. No, you don't, you don't get it. There's nothing wrong with asking the Holy Spirit to help you pray. But don't think that that's when he's going to start praying. He's already been praying for you in accordance with the will of God. Let me give you another example. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus says to his disciples, Satan's asked to sift you all his wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon. I prayed that your faith won't fail. Simon says, I don't need prayer. I don't know about the rest of these bums, but I'll never act like I don't know you. I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to do whatever. Jesus says, "Uh, I know you better than know yourself, and I've already prayed for you. In accordance with what the Father wants to do in this trial that you're about to go through, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun. But let me tell you, it's going to be good for you. Folks, understand these truths. Let the truth sink in. Yes, there's going to be time that he gives us green pastures. Yes, there's going to be times that he gives us still waters. But there's also the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And that is the valley of the shadow of death. That is the trials. And sometimes in this life, he brings us through them and we come out smelling, not even smelling the smoke. Doesn't look like it ever happened. But other times, well, it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, some were killed by the sword. Some were put to death. Sorry, some were escaped the edge of the sword. Some were killed by the sword. All of these were commended for their faith. He gets to do what he wants to do, however he wants to do it. We rejoice Because we know that this isn't happening because God's mad at me. He's not punishing me. He loves me. This is for my good. I don't know how it's going to play out. I I, I got no problem with saying, Lord, if you want to make this short, that's okay with me. If you want to take it away, that's fine. But nevertheless, if you want me to go through this, I will. And once he says, I'm not taking it away, okay, accomplish your purposes. When the three Hebrews come out of the test, they come out alone. that interesting that fourth person in the fire didn't come out he didn't stay in the fire he just went on to his next episode but they they come out alone you ever notice that when the two men on the road to Emmaus had left they were all discouraged they're heading back to Emmaus on the day Jesus rose from the dead Jesus appears reveals himself to him and then disappears and they have to go back and tell the crowd themselves without Jesus he's alive now, he does show up later on and reveal himself to that group, but let me say this to you. There's going to be things that God's going to walk you through, and he's going to be with you through them, and you're to tell of what he did. They may not understand it, but we're to be his witnesses. He is real. He's there. He'll help you. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, we comfort others with the comfort that we also have received. Some of you have been through things that I've never been through. You can be of more help to somebody that's going through that same thing than I could be. But Jim, you're the pastor. Folks, I learned years ago that just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I understand. And I used to, have, I used to say that. You know, someone would come and share something with me and I'd say, I understand. And then I started to realize, I don't understand. And sometimes people would call me on and say, No, you don't. And I'd say, You're right, I don't. But I thought that's what I was supposed to say. <laughs> But you know what I started to realize as a pastor? I started to realize who are people that have been through these things. And when people come and share with me their struggle, I'd say, go talk to so-and-so. So, you're going to go talk to so-and-so. Don't talk to me. I, 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 I can't help you. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ who can walk you through because they've been through it. Some of you have been through some things you need to go tell people about. Where to proclaim his greatness. Go to 1 Peter again. Go to chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We were in chapter 1 earlier. Look at chapter 2. Look at verses 9 through 13. But you, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen closely. Years ago, when I was pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic, God began to teach me that a lot of the stuff that we expect the pastor to do, wasn't really supposed to be done by the pastors. If you've ever read my book on the principle of God-centered church, it's a whole chapter on how God designed the church to do the work, not the pastors. Pastors are supposed to be equipping the church to do the work. Actually, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. But over the years, we've expected the pastor. Someone sick, call the pastor. Someone need to be saved, call the pastor. And we've expected the pastor to do the work of the ministry when the Bible actually says that the pastors are supposed to be feeding you the word so that you would go and minister and the body build itself up as each part does its work. So as I started to learn this, there just so happened to be at that time a young man who had been led to faith by another man in our church, a guy named Gary, had led this young man Tim to faith in Jesus Christ. And he came to our church, he got baptized, and it was just an amazing story and how the church, First Baptist in the Atlantic, loved on Tim. He was, he was from the drug parts of, of Melbourne, and he had dreadlocks, and when we baptized him, that was the first bath Tim had had in a long time. And after you have to realize, white-collar, First Baptist in the Atlantic, Tim didn't look like the rest of the congregation, but it was so neat to see the congregation just love on Tim. But just a few weeks, no more than a month or two after Tim got saved, Tim died of a seizure. And it was time for his funeral, and God had me do something crazy. He said, I don't want you to preach Tim's funeral. I want, you, I want you to have Gary preach it. Now, I'm not gonna get into all the backstory behind that, but God made very clear to me that I wasn't not only supposed to not do it, I wasn't even supposed to be there. So Gary actually preached Tim's funeral. Gary comes to me and he says, do we still have Tim's baptism video? And I said, yeah. He goes, I want Tim to preach at his own funeral. See, because back then, when everybody got baptized, baptistry was there, the big screen would come down and we would make a video ahead of time of them telling their story. Hello, my name's Tim. Here is how I came to know, believe in Jesus and trust him as my savior. And we'd do that video. And then on that day they were baptized, the screen would come down. They would share their testimony. The screen would go up and we'd baptize them. He said, we still got Tim's video. I want him to preach at his own funeral. And he said, I also don't want to call it a funeral. I want to call it a memorial service. And I want to, and he went and he made these little flyers where he went around and he, and he put up flyers all over. You know how bands will have a show somewhere on a back club or whatever and they'll just staple up posters all over? He, he made posters with a picture of Tim, dreadlocks, dreadlocks and all, and it says, Memorial for Tim at such and such a time at 1st Baptist in the Atlantic. And he posted them all over Melbourne and the drug parts of town. bunch of people came Tim shared his own testimony from the grave as, and, and the video and then Gary by the way Gary at that time worked for the IRS he wasn't a preacher but Gary got up and he shared the gospel seven people got saved at that funeral and then the funeral director called me afterwards and he said I got to tell you something I said what's that He goes, I've done hundreds of funerals, and that's the first time I ever heard the gospel. I go, you've been to funerals that I've preached. He goes, listen. He said, whenever you stand up there in your suit with your reverend and your seminary degree, my attitude was, he's getting paid to say that. But when Gary got up there, and he shared it, and he's not a preacher, I heard it. Folks were hurting the gospel by expecting the preachers to be telling everybody about what Jesus does when he walks us through the fire. You have been given a responsibility. You are part of this chosen race, aren't you? You're also a royal priesthood, then, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We should be in the world, but not smell like the world. And lastly, as we close tonight, I'm going to tell you something that you hopefully already know, but it'll probably make you feel better. Um, Satan himself is going to be cast into the fire, and Jesus won't show up. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15, that after the thousand years are over, that he's been bound, he's going to be released for a short period of time. He's going to tempt those who have been born during the millennial kingdom to come fight against Jesus. Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. And then the Bible says very clearly that Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire and he'll be tormented there day and night forever and ever along with the false prophet and everybody else is thrown into the lake of fire. You know, the Bible says very clearly, well, instead of me quoting it, let's close with this verse. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Listen closely. I love this. This will be how we close tonight. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued at the same time righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Let me ask you this question Are there wicked men in the world planning bad stuff? Could they even possibly be in our government, men and women? God knows. And you don't have to get all bellyaching about it and all upset about it because God knows how to keep the ungodly for judgment and he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Oh, by the way, if he's going to rescue you from the trials, does that mean that you'll escape it? No. no, he'll deliver you out of it either by life or by death. And folks, when you can get to that point where you believe it and it moves from theology to experience, Satan will have no way to get you. He'll have no way to get you. That's why the Bible says, says that those who have suffered in this life are done with sin. I love you. We'll see you next week.